I feel that for the very first time in history, we not only understand the genetic underpinnings of disease, but we actually have tools that allow us to tackle them. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders, the podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that explores the fast-moving world of biotech and pharma. I'm your host, Joe Coletti, and today we'll be joined by RBC's biotechnology analyst, Luca Isi, to talk about the rapid surge in innovation and investment in genetic medicine. Now let's get right into it. Luca, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much, Joe. Yeah, fired up by this conversation, so looking forward to it. So b- before we, we get into our topic, I do want you to tell us a little bit more about your own personal background, uh, let our listeners in on that a little bit. And then, and I know you'll love to do this, tell us a little bit more about why you find the genetic medicine space so exciting. Yeah, I'm originally from Italy, from beautiful Italy, born and raised there. I'm a PhD scientist by training. I have, uh, at this point, close to 10 years of experience, both on the buy side and the sell side. Uh, and again, we, we cover here at RBC, the genetic medicine space more broadly. We're very, very excited about that space. Uh, you know, I feel that for the very first time in history, we not only understand the genetic underpinnings of disease, but we actually have tools that allow us to tackle them. You know, if you reflect on diseases like hemophilia or sickle cell disease, uh, for a very, very long period of time, all we knew about those diseases were the genetics behind it, but there was not a whole lot that we could do about it. Versus now we do have tools that actually allow us to uh, fix uh, some of those genetics, right? So if you think about uh, turning off a bad gene, uh, well, welcome to siRNA or antisense oligonucleotide that allows you to turn off the expression of those genes, right? Or maybe you want to do the opposite. You want to turn on a gene. Well, you should check out what mRNA can do or gene therapy can do, uh, which again, can allow the expression of genes that uh, are, are important for the pathophysiology of, of different patients. Or maybe you want to fix a gene. I mean, this is the latest and greatest. Gene editing is the answer. It's a technology that actually allow you to fix genes. Um, we actually estimate 27 drugs approved within the genetic medicine space. Um, and we think that this could be just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, when we look at the number of monogenic diseases out there, there are 6,000 monogenic diseases, meaning caused by one gene and only one, and only one gene. Uh, we continue to believe that genetic medicine is the next wave of innovation in biotech, and we believe that we'll continue to unlock value for both patients and shareholders. It's just amazing to hear you talk about it from a top line, the, the potential in this space. And I think that you know one of the things that you, you obviously cited is, I think, something that people have heard much more about since COVID, mRNA. So maybe we... Just double click a little bit down into mRNA for a second. So what has been the impact of this technology on the vaccine industry? Yeah, no, great question, Joe. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll take it on, you know, starting with the vaccine side first and then go to the technology. I mean, look, we're big believers in vaccines, right? So it's actually estimated that except for safe water, uh, there's no other modality that has ever had a larger impact in mortality in humans in history. Uh, so vaccines do prevent 4 million deaths uh, every year. They prevent 322 million illnesses every year. Uh, and if you think about it, there's diseases, entire diseases that have been eradicated because of uh, vaccine, right? If you think about diphtheria or smallpox, those have been eradicated because of vaccines. And, you know, mRNA is really transforming this industry. If you think about what mRNA can do, you're essentially using humans to produce the immunogenic protein instead of very, very large uh, bioreactor. And the implications here is that you can produce 
uh, these vaccines in a lot cheaper, faster, and more versatile way. The Moderna went from 100,000 doses produced in 2019 to actually 800 million doses produced in 2021. This would have never been possible with traditional vaccine manufacturing. And obviously, pharma is now all over this technology. Merck, Pfizer, Roche, Lilly, GSK, investing big dollars behind uh, mRNA. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's great news that this technology is now both uh, clinically and commercially validated. Uh, if you think about what the uh, clinical data for the COVID vaccine showed, um, you know, efficacy obviously in the mid 90s, um, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the rest is history. Like the vaccine has uh, prevented 18.5 million hospitalizations, uh, 3.2 million deaths prevented in the United States, and $1.15 trillion saved in the United States alone. So, again, we're excited about vaccines. mRNA is transforming this industry, and we believe that it's poised to continue to create value. You know, so many of us have seen the power of M mRNA in, in real life now. Is there a role for mRNA beyond the COVID vaccines? We have seen some very, very promising data uh, in melanoma um, where, again, I don't want to oversell that data. It's just 157 patients, so it's still relatively small. However, it has been shown that the patients randomized to the standard of care versus the standard of care plus the vaccine. The patients that did receive the vaccine either live longer or had their cancer come back later. Um, so again, cautious, don't want to oversell the data, but it's very, very promising. Um, the data is going to be presented in an upcoming medical meeting at AACR. And this could be the epitome of personalized medicine. So uh, just for context, this is a vaccine where you take the tumor biopsy from a patient and you take a healthy tissue as well. And then you're essentially looking at what are the differences in the molecular biology between the two, the healthy tissue and the tumor biopsy. And you come up with a cocktail of different mRNAs that should stimulate your immune system and have the ability of your immune system to go after cancer. So uh, again, every single patient will get a different cocktail of mRNA. So again, this is really the epitome of personalized uh, medicine. I think there is uh, reasons to believe that this technology would not only be limited to infectious disease, but will create value also for other indications, including, including cancer potentially. So we haven't heard the last of mRNA is what I'm hearing you say, which I think is a is is a good thing. Um, so, you know, maybe staying in the RNA family slightly for a second, pivoting a little bit to siRNA. Um, it looks like it's been a roller coaster ride for investors um, with multiple setbacks uh, along the way. Um, where are we? in your view, in the innovation cycle? And where is it headed next? It's certainly uh, siRNA has been a little bit of a roller coaster ride for investors. Uh, so it certainly has not been a straight line. And, uh, you know, if you if you recall, uh, again, Craig Melander firewall the price in 206, and there was some really initial enthusiasm with a lot of pharma and VC pouring money in this field. Um, and it was exciting for a while, and then it became no longer exciting because, unfortunately, uh, there has been some uh, issues. Uh, Alnalum had a mortality imbalance for Ravusiran. There was some early toxicity in monkey from a different company. Some of the early data in cancer actually end up not uh, playing out immediately. So most investors lose, lost hope. So most investors left the space. If you look at uh, where the field was in the mid-2010, this was a $5 million cumulative market cap across all uh, uh, the, the entire field of siRNA. And again, most investors left, but few decided to stay. And the one that stayed 
actually got rewarded uh, in, a, in a pretty impressive way because again the science made progress um, there was this uh, um, the, the main issue here was to deliver this technology to the right tissue uh, there was this uh, uh, innovations called galnac that allows uh, people to deliver the siRNA directly to the liver in a pretty pretty safe manner and the rest is history you know there's now multiple drugs that are approved for siRNA if you look at a cumulative value for that field is a 50 billion dollar value if you com if you combine market cap as well as some of the MA that we have seen in in that space so uh yeah innovation takes time it's never a straight line uh science is always humbling is always taking longer than you would hope for hope for but again disruptive technology can uh, ultimately uh, succeed in siRNA I think is a great example of that um, and I think the last part of the question where where's this technology going next I mean um, I kind of think about it at two levels so number one is the indication so so far siRNA has been used primarily for very kind of rare or ultra rare diseases like primary hyperoxaluria or acute hepatic porphyria or some of the others um, however it is a technology that might get approved in the foreseeable future for much larger indications a company like Alnalum is working on uh, TTR cardiomyopathy, which are much, much larger indications. And so I think that that's where the field is going from rare to more prevalent indications, as well as new tissue. So as of today, the technology is primarily used to turn off genes and deliver. However, we have seen innovations on tissues beyond liver. So again, we've seen some early data in the CNS, as well as some early data in muscles and other tissues. So again, uh, exciting technology. Uh, and and I think going to both larger indications as well as new tissues is uh, where this technology is going from now on. Yeah, I really take to heart your innovation takes time. And I know you've you've said it to me before that innovation is not linear, uh, which I think is a really important point, particularly in this sector. And I think that it's a great transition to another topic that we have to talk about which is gene editing. So what about gene editing? It's something I think a lot of people will read about in the news, but I, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. And what's the opportunity here, you know, not just for patients, but also investors? Yeah, I know. Great question. Uh, I mean, look, um, Jennifer Donna and Emmanuel Charpentier won the Nobel Prize in 2020, the very first female duo to ever win the Nobel Prize. So again, obviously very, very exciting uh, technology there. This is essentially technology that allows you to essentially precisely edit individual genes actually using an old uh, bacterial immune system. So uh, again, uh, there's, there's a lot of indications that this technology is applicable to. We already have seen some great proof of concept uh, from a few companies, um, including uh, CRISPR and including Intelia. We may get the very first uh, CRISPR-Cas9 therapy approved in the foreseeable future. Again, CRISPR is supposed to uh, file their sickle cell disease uh, program soon. So again, very, very exciting technology. And I think for, for gene editing, you know, it adds a wrinkle, which is this is going to be one and done, right? So you're essentially permanently edited gene and you're, you're fixing the disease. And so this is going to be quite disruptive for the broader field. Uh, and again, it will take time. And we know from siRNA that, you know, this technology did not become uh, um, you know, reality for patients overnight. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're quite exciting. And then obviously, investors need to balance the excitement around the technology with some of the risks, uh, which we, we may want to talk about it. Uh, but again, overall, we continue to be big believers in this technology. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a really important point is talking about some of these risks. I mean, obviously, gene editing is clearly an exciting technology. I think uh, there's consensus on that. But when you're talking about permanently editing the DNA of human beings and not being able to go back after that, 
you know, can you talk and expand maybe a little bit on what some of those risks are? Yeah, great question. Uh, again, uh, we need to monitor these patients very, very carefully. And we need to stay vigilant and make sure that these patients don't have any unintended consequences. And really, when you think about the risks, it's two levels. So level one is what's called off-target editing. So essentially, you're trying to edit gene A. However, in the process, you're also editing gene B, and that gene B has some unintended consequences. And so we have to be careful. We have to monitor these patients. We have to do whatever is in our power to de-risk potential safety concern. However, so far, so good. Like, you know, we've seen data. It looks like the off-target editing occurs at higher doses versus the doses that are therapeutically relevant. So uh, it looks like you can actually thread the needle here between uh, safety and efficacy. Um, and, uh, and again, we, we have to be, you have to be cautious. It's still early days, but we're quite uh, reassured on that. So again, you know, the other very, very important considerations here, uh, Joe, as you know, is the potential risk of transgenerational risk. So essentially, you're permanently editing the, the genome of human beings. Uh, and so the key question is whether is it possible that that permanent edit actually gets passed over to the offspring. Uh, and so this is obviously something that we have to monitor really, really carefully. It is a potential uh, potential risk. However, so far, so good. In animal models, we have not seen this being passed along to uh, the next generations. And I would also say we now have technologies that allow us to uh, deliver the therapy specifically to uh, specific tissues. So the risk should be fairly limited. Again, I'm reflecting back on uh, the way, uh, for example, Intelia is delivering their gene editing approach to using lipid nanoparticles. Those lipid nanoparticles are designed to go specifically in the liver. So those uh, uh, the likelihood that other tissues, including sperm or eggs, are being edited is is fairly, fairly low. Um, again, something that we have to be uh, very careful about is something that needs to be monitored over time. We do need longitudinal data. So far, it does not seem to be a big concern. No, I think really important points. And I mean, we've covered mRNA, we've covered siRNA, we talked a little about gene editing. You know, the, the question that probably stands out in people's minds, I'd love to get your perspective what will really distinguish the winners versus the losers in the genetic medicine field? Yeah, I mean, that's a quintessential question here, I guess. But, uh, you know, look, I, th I think there are two components. The way I think about it is one is the technology itself. And we actually spent a lot of time today to, to talk about these technologies. So obviously you need to have a disruptive technology that can make impact for patients. Um, and, and again, the one that we talked about today, again, we're, we're pretty excited. Uh, obviously, we're biased because we're putting our career behind this, but we, we, we think that those technology will make an impact for patients. Um, however, you also have to reflect on just old school execution really comes down to uh, these management teams being able to execute, uh, going after the right indication. So again, indications prioritizations is very, very important. I think it's important that with this more innovative technology, we first go after indications with larger medical need where you can actually justify taking the risk given the severity of the disease uh, and maybe the, 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 uh, the diseases for which we do have alternatives maybe will, will come a little bit later in the game. Um, and I would say also, especially in this environment, uh, you know, navigating a tough financial environment, it's something that, that will be that'll be very important. Obviously, uh, biotech is very capital intensive. And, and so I think being, uh, you know, it's, it's about a technology for sure. And, you know, having a technology disruptive is critical, but like old school execution and strategy will matter too. And I think that those two components are going to ultimately be the two factors that distinguish the winners versus losers in this field. 
All right. Is there anything else we need to cover, Luca? I just want to thank you for the time, Joe. I think this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, again, looking forward to have more of those. Again, for anyone who wants to reach out, uh, you know where to find me. And uh, we appreciate the time. And we're going to need to have you back because there's so much going on in the space and there's so much potential in the space. And we know that investors and a lot of folks in our audience value this perspective. So please do come back. We appreciate uh, you having me on the show. And yeah, look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to Pathfinders and Biopharma, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. This episode was recorded on March 24th, 2023. If you'd like to learn more or continue the conversation, please contact us directly or visit rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. If you're enjoying Pathfinders and Biopharma, don't miss an episode. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you next time. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.